The CNBC app, global market news in one place. Customizable sections and personalized alerts. Stocks tracking, interactive charts and market insights all in your hands. Stay connected, stay informed. Download the CNBC app today. A very warm welcome, everybody. You're watching Sportbox with Steve Sedgwick, Karen Cho, and me, Jeff Cutmore. Let's get into your headlines this morning. Asian markets hitting their lowest levels in two years, echoing weakness on Wall Street as markets eye key inflation data and the start of earnings season. The euro trading closer to dollar parity with recession concerns in Europe fueling the slide, while expectations for a more aggressive Fed push the greenback higher. Early in corporate news, Twitter preparing to file a former law, formal lawsuit against Elon Musk over his dropped takeover bid, accusing the billionaire of knowingly breaching his $44 billion agreement. Plus, higher energy prices topping the agenda, with European finance ministers preparing to meet a day after a crucial Russian natural gas pipeline to Europe shuts for repairs. Blocks uh, economy minister telling CNBC the plans are being drawn up in case of permanent disruption. We will have to manage a, a difficult situation, but we are preparing also for July the 20th a new communication of the Commission to exactly to address this emergency. U.S. leader Joe Biden embarks on his first presidential trip to the Middle East with the goal of heading off a global energy crisis. Will be live in Jerusalem, the first leg of the tour at this hour. We've actually had a jolly good run to the upside in the recent uh, few sessions on, for instance, the Nasdaq, but. I wouldn't say things came crashing down yesterday. That would be uh, an extension of the truth. But things certainly moderated excessively, certainly with the Nasdaq falling 2.3%, one of the biggest falling sectors. Communication services, which was down 2.8%. And what's the worry? Well, the worry appears to be that your economy is too hot, which is extraordinary, isn't it? And uh, the worry at the moment for you doesn't seem to be uh, whether we're in recession or not. The worry seems to be whether rates are going up or not and whether the action of the markets and the action of the underlying economy is going to dent that ascendancy on rates when we get another uh, Fed rate-setting meeting the week after next. Well, we saw the jobs data and Karen and Jeff poured over that in advance on Friday and uh, looking back at it yesterday. And it looks jolly hot at the moment. So maybe Janet Yellen, when she says, I do not see recessionary indicators at the moment maybe she's right as well but my goodness me over the next couple of days we're going to get some real confirmation of just how hot the market is because we're going to get cpi on wednesday ppi on thursday and retail sales on friday as well if they all remain solid robust or hot then we are obviously slam dunk for 75 basis points later in this month. And of course, then it comes about what happens thereafter and technology. And again, I I find this amazing because this line has built up that technology is the most interest rate sensitive because of the discounted growth path going forward as well, the discounted growth model going forward. Again, I'll make the point that is a rhetoric, that is a line that has come 
following the move in these uh, compared to interest rates as well, following the move in these stocks. Because as far as I was told for years and years and years, and Karen was told it and Jeff was told it, that they were counter cyclical because there was a structural story going on here. And it is extraordinary how the line from the media, the line from the analysts, the line from the companies themselves has become all about interest rates. It was never supposed to be that way, ladies and gentlemen. And if you don't believe me, look back at CNBC, look back at the Financial Times, look back at the Wall Street Journal in advance of the route, which still means that despite the rally of the last five days and six days, and then of course one losing day within that as well, we are down 30% on technology stocks. Don't get me wrong, it's across the board. Russell 2K down by the same margin. Transport's down by 27% as well. Let's have a look at Treasuries. Treasuries are benign at the moment. There's no doubt about it. We are nowhere near our highs in terms of yield and our lows in terms of the underlying as well. So let's have a look at the Treasuries. Again, look at that. It's a pretty flat yield curve from two-year paper at 3.04 to 30-year paper at 3.16. The good thing for you in America at the moment is comparatively that the 30-year mortgage rate, the most popular mortgage rate in the States, uh, has abated from its recent highs. Now, before we get on to dollar crosses, I want to tell you what I did last night. I saw a slam dunk of a soccer game, probably one of the best football games I've seen. Well, certainly since 2006, but that was a very big game there. I won't tell you about that one. But last night, England's women in the European Cup won 8-0 against Norway. Norway had won their previous six games. England thrashed them. Absolute, biggest thrashing, men or women, in any football. It was a joyous occasion. Absolutely fantastic as well. But my point about currencies is that it's a slam dunk 8-0 at the moment for the dollar compared with every other currency. Now, I know there's focus on this big shiny number. We'll get back to that in a moment. I don't care about big shiny numbers. What I really care about uh, is the overall trend. And the fact of the matter is, whether it's against the pound, look at the pound in the post-Brexit nirvana. 118.60 is where it's currently trading. Political and economic worries to the fore, of course, as well. Euro dollar, I'll come back to that in a moment. But look at this. I didn't know if I'd ever see two things happening here. A, the dollar yen trading at 137 when we've seen it. Where was our low, Jeff? We saw it at 80, didn't we, at our lows? In the, in the, uh, the lows of the last 20 years. So around about 80 odd as well. At 137 compared with that is absolutely extraordinary. But benign neglect? Well, have a look at the... I mean, again, he's spoken to Haruhiko Kuroda many, many times. Oh, let's bring Karen and Jeff in. I know that JP, JP, you're waiting. I'll get to you in a moment. But first of all, Jeff, I mean, isn't it extraordinary that the benign neglect on the yen's decline from the man at the centre of it, the, 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 the Yoda of central bank policy, Haruhika Kuroda? Extraordinary, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, what is this? The lowest level now since 1989, I think. And um, what, what's extraordinary to me is that you hear nothing from the US administration or the Treasury about currency manipulation at this stage. No. And yet increasingly as we look at the strength of the dollar and the other currencies that are weakening against it, I would have thought that there would be a raised eyebrow in the Treasury because this is doing a lot of damage to that whole idea or policy of deglobalization and reonshoring in the United States. But at the moment, it seems that the American administration is prepared to sit back and allow this to happen. And I guess if you, if you run the counter argument, there are also some good reasons why the US administration might want to exert pain on other developing economies, namely the big one in the East, by 
allowing the dollar to continue to strengthen. If you have a lot of debt in dollars, it starts to get very painful when the dollar's this strong. Oh, well and good if you can target uh, the likes of China in isolation, but uh, India and the rupee also drifting to a fresh record low today. So we're not just talking about one or two uh, currencies in isolation here, all suffering versus the greenback. And we're talking about countries that the Americans want to be uh, partners with. Uh, if you think about India and how pivot pivotal it is at this point as we try and tackle the energy crisis, whether the Indians uh, come on board when it comes to tackling Russian sanctions, and that price cap that we're all confused yeah. about. So I think you've got a lot of key countries here as we talk about future negotiations, G20s and beyond, that the currency might be one of the big issues in coming months, Steve. I think you're spot on, Karen. Can we do that big wide shot again? Because I want to tell the viewers something beautiful about television as well. The wide shot, Rod, the wide shot with all three of us. Yeah, that one. Yeah, this one. So this one, I'm pretending to look at Jeff and Karen, but actually all I can see is Jeff and a robotic camera in the way. So I'll just come over here. So there's Karen as well. The magic of Tell you, you had no idea I couldn't see a word she was saying, but I knew what she was saying because I had her in my ear as well. Okay, let's move on to the euro. This is a big shiny number that is getting people excited as well. Uh, the lowest level potentially since 2002. Again, it is a slam dunk. If you've got one central bank that thinks it can raise by another 75 basis points, another 75 basis points, and another one. Well, we're at minus 0.5, but we're not entirely sure about our path going forward because we're worried about all kinds of things, including fragmentation. But luckily, that is not something that uh, JP Yong has to worry about on the Asian markets as well, which are trading at their lowest level. I think our, view, our producers mean the equity markets are trading at their lowest level uh, in two years. But JP Ong, the aforementioned, if I look over my left shoulder, I think he's there. So let's have a look. He's in Singapore and he's got some more detail for us. Good morning to you, sir. Indeed, I am on your left shoulder or over your left shoulder, Steve. Unfortunately, it is a red and rather worrisome picture. You are right. Asian stocks really coming to or hovering around their two-year lows. And again, these recession concerns, the concerns of these faster rate hikes from the United States, really sapping confidence out of markets from Tokyo to Taipei, from Sydney to Shanghai, really. And there's also one other thing that's really weighing on markets here. China, the resumption and the resurgence of COVID-19 uh, infections in some key cities like Shanghai, once again, stoking concerns about potential lockdowns. We are also awaiting China's second quarter GDP report card later this week after the U.S. CPI report or around that time. And we'll be seeing how the impact of the previous social restrictions because of the previous rise in April and May of those COVID-19 uh, infections there. And you're seeing it really hit sentiment in Shanghai and Hong Kong. The Shanghai composite down by about 1%. Hang Seng falling by 1.2%. Tech stocks there also getting pummeled. But you also have to take a look at casinos stocks because of the lockdown in Macau. The House is not winning this Tuesday out in Hong Kong. And this is also having a ripple effect across many other economies in Asia that are closely linked to the, to the Chinese economy, the biggest in, South, in Asia and the second biggest in the world. You're seeing the Straits Times Index in Singapore being a bit of a safe haven here, just seeing slight gains, but really nothing to write home about. Don't be deceived by this gain in the ASX 200 so far today, because you're actually going to see that iron ore miners here have fallen alongside iron ore prices again linked to a possible slowdown out in mainland China. Stocks from the Philippines in Taiwan, even here in the Nikkei 225, falling by about 1.9%, despite the fact that the Japanese yen, as you mentioned, has weakened. And this brings us to the Forex space here in, in Asia. And really, the FX markets are whistling Dixie. The dollar index really strengthened against many peers. Again, the Japanese yen finding its footing, but still trading above 137 to the greenback, as you guys alluded to. We want to take a look also at the Korean won 
bonds so far today falling to its lowest level since 2009. The Bank of Korea, of course, holding their policy decision tomorrow. And the Philippine peso also weakening today. The trade deficit in the Philippines also widening to about 5.7 billion U.S. dollars. So again, a lot of weakness. The dollar really taking strength, much at the expense of equities here in the Asia Pacific. Folks, back to you and good morning, I guess. JP, thank you very much for bringing us the latest there. You can push on to Twitter and we were showing you this timeline yesterday and we may need to stretch it out because we continue to add pieces to the puzzle here as this story continues to evolve. And the big ones really for me were the disclosure first up, the 9% stake that Musk had, the poison pill that was executed by the board using a key legal team. And that legal team, very important now as we talk about Musk trying to walk away from a deal to buy Twitter. And the latest is around the share price action. Twitter shares closed down over 11% in the first trading session since Elon Musk announced he wants to terminate his $44 billion takeover of the social media platform. Now, Twitter's legal team released a letter to the Tesla CEO describing his reasons for wanting to end the takeover as invalid and wrongful. Musk has claimed Twitter withheld information around its daily active users and has questioned the true number of spam accounts on the platform. So the excuse here, the legal argument effectively, is uh, this clause around uh, what uh, they've seen as a material change. Uh, that is what effectively they're going for. So let's just see whether they can enact that because over the course of time in the courts, it's been very hard to argue that there's been a material change in a business model and what's been presented to a would-be buyer, Jeff. Karen, Karen, Karen. Oh, you ran here. Still um, hiding behind a camera. Just well, they the put the side. camera. Oh, God. But a fast, brilliant conversation yeah. uh, with Andrew Ross Sorkin and Joe yesterday. I, I actually watched a bit of US Scorebooks, and I, I thoroughly enjoyed it. And they were both sitting there chatting about this. And, and Karen, I don't know if you can come back on this one, but what can the court do? And that was a really great conversation between Joe and Andrew. And I suddenly thought, well, it's a great point. What can the court actually? Let's let's say that. Um, Twitter is uh, successful in its legal challenge, mm. and that uh, it, can it make him buy it? Can it make him pay a fine? If not, uh, how much can the fine be? Is it the billion or is it more because of the actual loss in the share price since the bid and thereafter as well, or the uh, material damage to the company as well? Can, can they take some of his money? Can they confiscate some shares? It was, it was a brilliant conversation. I think it's because everyone thinks, oh, well, they'll make him pay up or they'll make him buy. But there's so many different scenarios of what the court can actually do and what it can't do. Mm. And, and can he just ignore the court? All roads come back to a billion dollars, don't they? I don't I mean, know if they do. Well, that was the break fee, and uh, effectively the court then enforced a purchase, and then Musk was effectively forced to, to go down that pathway. Then he would be able to, you would think, bring out the $1 billion break fee as the, the sort of mission abort process. But is the there. break fee conditional on certain factors that he can prove? rather than it's just a break you're right, I mean, around the financing, but there are question well, marks too around the financing. I mean, this is not one of those ones where I find it fascinating. Well, there are two parts here for the break fee. One is that the financing falls apart, and the other part is that uh, regulators stand in the way. But so he's got bundles of money. Been, he's one of the well, richest men on been, the planet. Well, if you think about the component, it wasn't all his money, right? Some of it was debt financing but as well. But it was all his bid. Uh, yes, but the debt financing component has been quite instrumental here, and there have been concerns in the market. We've had a lot of whispers about that financing component. So potentially... And with sour and credit conditions too, you could say there might be an argument. So let me get this credit, right, what you're saying, and I, and I know what you're saying, but it, I find it fascinating. One of the world's richest men, I don't know, was he the richest at one point? I let just assume he was, but he's there or there up. So your, your Bezos is of the world and, and the chap from Inditex and Buffett and, mm. and Gates. He's, he's in the top five or was. Mm. One of the world's richest men can't get financing for a $44 billion bid. 
small. It's like it's like me buying a house, isn't it? In buying that. Um, ultimately, it has to go back to the data, doesn't it? Because um, the argument that he is making for walking away is that he doesn't believe the validity of the data on erroneous accounts on Twitter. So whatever. Um, whatever the issues there are about the financing or the funding or the losses for shareholders, at the core of this issue is really the question of the validity of the data that's being provided by Twitter. So the court, it seems to me, has to come up with a judgment about the information that has been provided to Elon Musk which I think has interesting consequences then for how we think about valuations of Facebook, of Instagram, of TikTok, all those other social media websites that also have fake and erroneous accounts. Because if the court were to decide actually he's right and the information is not robust, then you start to cast the slide rule across these other businesses and say, well, by how much should their valuation be reduced? I mean, that's just a potential I consequence. But coming back to the, just coming back to what I think may unfold here, is there a point at which the management of Twitter capitulates for a settlement because not to do so may generate more collateral damage for Twitter shareholders. Can I just say one thing, because Aaron's got the intelligent thing. I was going to say, I think this is a six-year story. And when the story, the penny dropped for me, it was when Microsoft bought LinkedIn. And I'll tell you why that was when the penny dropped for me, because I was like, this didn't, and I ran the slide rule, I could run over all this. I was like, this doesn't make sense financially. I don't understand why Microsoft has paid this hefty premium for LinkedIn. It doesn't make much money or any money or whatever. And then it just came to me in a, you know, sitting in my bath yeah. with like uh, Archimedes, parted, Archimedes, the and, and the water displaced, and it went over, and I had oh, my eureka okay. moment, and it was it was all about data. Yeah. So then we became obsessed by it. data. Has changed the valuation of all these Absolutely. companies. My data, your data, the data that I don't know who heard you. Your Fortnum and Masons gathers on Karen, or, or Audi on you, or whatever, you know, <laughs> uh, 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 or Harrods on Karen, or I don't know, B and M with little, you, little, you know, yeah. exactly, That's you know. I'm somewhere near the bottom as well. Yeah. I'm actually, I think I'm actually displacing right. you for me, that's right. what I'm talking about. But the point is, it all became about data is God. And now all of a sudden, there's been a little bit of an erosion of that thought, isn't there? You missed a few champagne houses too when you're data mining me. Then. All right, Tattinger, <laughs> Bollinger, you name it. <laughs> but uh, I think if we go into the detail here, I mean, this, is a, zone. this is a Delaware court, uh, effectively, that will now have to make a decision. You think about what's gone before, there were all sorts of uh, conversations about material change with other companies, and that was based on other things like earnings, revenue, expenses, uh, all very usual items, and all items too that will be presented around Twitter, but to just around the valuation here. If you think about the way the market valued certain technology companies in recent times before mm. the tech crash, mm. it wasn't necessarily around those metrics, was it? It wasn't around revenue, it wasn't around profitability. It was around subscriber growth, for yeah. instance, that's mm. been one metric. Yep. I mean, how do you start to attach a value around subscriber value and, and what that number out. is? So then if you've got yeah. a change in the bots, whether it's a 5% swing or more, can you actually prove that, given that we've also now reset our market valuations for several different reasons? I think it's going to be extremely new territory in some ways for a Delaware court. It could be fascinating. I, I think you're, so then they all say, hang on a second, didn't we used to do something before we looked at subscriber growth, MAUs, DAUs, YAUs? Yeah, yeah, EBITDA, yeah. EBITDA, apparently. Uh, didn't we used to do stuff before? Uh, EBITDA, of course, that's a beautiful one. But, but no, be before EBITDA, because that was invented during dot-com, by the way. And so, what, was it, what did we used to do? Oh, yeah, we used to do this thing called accountancy. 
where we had a balance sheet with a top line and a bottom line. Oh, quick, let's dust that one off on Wall Street and have a look at what the value of companies are based on their profits. Extraordinary. Um, just coming back to the, 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 the purpose of all of these users and the information that uh, you gain from them, i.e. how long do they spend on your site, is there a click-through to a transaction, Ultimately, this is about advertising revenue and advertising spend. And the world was told that the digital economy is smarter and more efficient because you can track your users and you can see how long they spend and you can see what they do as a consequence of the advertising. Increasingly, I think what the advertising world is beginning to work out, but it's too hard to process, is that they, the, the, the time spent isn't necessarily actually spent by a real person. It may be spent by a bot. There may be an element of gaming going on to puff up the figures. And this is ultimately at the heart, isn't it, of the Twitter story? Because if you change the business model of Twitter and make it much more targeted ad focused, you need to be able to use that data efficiently. Hang on a second. I think something's happened. Sorry, something terrible's happened. We've pulled the tape from 2002 rather than actually live telly in 2022 because we seem to be talking about something we talked about ad infinitum, guys, 20 years ago. I, the, the strengths and failures of the advertising model. I thought, no, we must be back in 20, 2002 because in 2022, it was all about a sophisticated model, a hybrid model that wasn't just all about advertising. What's... I don't understand where we are. I'm having a time frame problem. Yeah, those time transition <laughs> Yeah, well, yeah. It's funny where you the screen bring up goes the wobbly. And the relevance here, given that Elon Musk wanted to step away from such a, oh. an advertising driven model. So, how so is he going to monetize it? Oh, yeah, we were all going to pay for something we get for free. But it's just now. unusual to be arguing the point over bots and then you don't really necessarily want to monetize it, supposedly. Yeah. Uh, the other point here, didn't uh, Apple get in the way in terms of tracking some of those users and the time yes, spent anyway? Did. So, yes, it'll did. be interesting. But uh, we've got to leave that conversation there and uh, get involved on Twitter if you want to or other social media platforms and uh, get engaged in conversation. But only if you're a real person. That's not right, a not a boss. Oh, no, I don't mind if you're a bot. I haven't got any followers. <laughs> <laughs> we'll give you a robotic response. Meantime, we are watching you very, very closely. You can see we are just perched uh, a cusp, a whisker off parity. I'll quote what I just said. I said, I said I don't mind you doing me, follow me if you're a bot. I haven't got enough followers. He goes, well, you can buy some. What a terribly <laughs> cynical <laughs> man you are, Rod. Is that true? Do people buy You can, but I I've heard that there once was a presenter that. who worked for CNBC, yes. and I, who long, long time ago, years right, ago, right. and I heard that she might have bought some followers. Yes. Yes, well, it's I kind of that. obvious when I'm, you go sure from 1,000 to 15,000 <laughs> overnight. Scurrilous. Coming up on the programme then, European finance ministers meet in Brussels after a sobering warning from Bruno Le Maire on Russian gas. We'll have more on that story when we come back. Oh, someone told me the podcast is, is vintage today. It's straight out 2002, before we'd even heard of podcasts. Uh, for more on what's a rocky uh, forecast for earnings season, we talked about a lot of other things, to be fair. Uh, a Son School Watch podcast. Listen to CNBC's Beyond the Valley, the podcast that explores the biggest tech news from across the globe. Join me, Arjun Karpal. And me, Tom Chitty, every week as we bring you insights into the top stories, unpack the latest trends, and find out where the industry is headed. Now available on Spotify, Apple Music, and Google Podcasts.
Welcome back, everybody. Uh, let's focus on this uh, gas story. Uh, the gas supply crisis in Europe is expected to dominate discussion at today's Economic and Financial Affairs Council meeting in Brussels. This after EU officials told CNBC the economy is set to face higher inflation continuing into next year. And of course, the background to this, we know that Nord Stream 1 is closing and that means that this shutdown for maintenance repair will stop all gas coming through that pipeline into Europe. Sylvia is in Brussels uh, monitoring events at this meeting. Sylvia, what are we going to hear that's different from what we've heard already about how Europe is scrambling to respond to this gas crisis? So really what the finance ministers did yesterday and what they're expected to continue today is really assessing the economic impact and also what sort of measures they should consider going forward because there's a risk here. They need to be careful about what sort of policies they put forward because they could. there's also the risk they could drive inflation even higher. So there's this difficult balancing act that the finance ministers have been discussing uh, yesterday and they're expected to do so once again again later this morning. But I have to say that the feeling here on the ground is very much of this uh, ongoing fear that the gas supplies from Russia might end overnight. And in this context, we actually heard from Bruno Le Maire over the weekend, the French finance minister, making the comment that Europe needs to prepare for that eventuality. And so I asked the president of the Eurogroup here yesterday whether this is actually their working assumption, whether the base case is actually that Russia will end its natural gas supplies to the bloc. It is, of course, a concern and it is something that we are monitoring very actively. At the moment, we would have 12 economies within the European Union that are being affected by restrictions with regard to gas and with regard to energy. But the European Union has also taken steps to try to also manage and mitigate this risk as we move through the year. So the European Union at the moment has set a target of aiming to get our storage of gas in particular up to 80% of what it normally would be and putting in place measures to make that happen. We're currently at 55% of that target and the European Union and the Commission will also be bringing forward proposals to help us manage the kind of challenges that could occur if we get into an environment of even more restricted supply later on in the year. So of course it's a risk, of course it's in particular a significant risk to where we are with growth but it's also a risk that we identify now and a risk that we are putting in place plans against. You're trying to address that. But the French finance minister actually said over the weekend that uh, the essentially the base case should be for uh, a full cut-off from Russian gas supplies. Is this your working assumption as well? Is this your base case? We are expecting, as we move through the year, to see further changes in relation to the supply of gas and the supply of energy and the European Commission and the Prime Ministers and heads of government within the EU have recognised this as a real risk now for some time particularly in the last European Union Council meeting that happened there a number of weeks ago in Brussels but this is why uh, we are putting in place actions against this risk. The truth is we can't eliminate the risk, Uh, the truth is we cannot insulate ourselves entirely from it. But we can take steps, both now and in the medium term, 
that offer a response to the risk and offer ways of lessening the impact of it. And that is what is now happening. So just to, to clarify, you are taking actions at the moment because your working assumption is that in a couple of months' time, gas supplies from Russia will not to be taking place to Europe. I, I think at the moment I wouldn't say it's a working assumption, but it is a recognition of a significant risk. And steps are being taken in the short term in terms of building up our capacity for gas storage. And then in the medium term, regarding alternative sources of energy other than imported gas. So we recognise it as a significant risk, but we have done this now for some time. This is a risk that the Prime Ministers of the European Union and Finance Ministers recognised a number of months ago and led to the idea and the, uh, the implementation of the Repower EU initiative. So Pascal Donoghue, the president of the Eurogroup there, making it clear that it's not their working assumption at the time that Russia will end all of its gas supplies to Europe. But nonetheless, he did say that this is a significant risk. And keeping this in mind, it's important to look at how the European Commission will be presenting new economic forecasts this Thursday. Yesterday, the Commissioner for Economic Affairs, Paolo Gentiloni, told me that they are not forecasting a recession for the Euro zone this year or the next for now, but he did say that that forecast, that estimate could change if indeed there's fewer gas supplies coming to Europe. The energy um, prices are very volatile. They were on the rise for gas last week uh, in the expectation of the of the um, what happened today uh, in North Stream 1. Um, then today they were very volatile. Uh, what will affect our scenarios uh, is mostly the risks of uh, shortages in gas supply, more than prices. Of course, prices are influencing inflation, but it's a fact that inflation is already largely in Europe caused by energy prices. It was 42% the energy inflation in our last figures. What could change the situation we are in and bring us in a more difficult economic situation uh, are um, supply cuts and uh, real shortages of supply. This could change a picture that for the time being is a picture of very limited, reduced and slow down growth. We are not in negative territory at the moment. So we were told here yesterday the Commission will be revising its inflation forecasts upwards and growth forecasts downwards when uh, uh, they announce these new estimates on Thursday. But to read more about that, you can check my article on cnbc.com. Thank you for listening to Squawk Box Europe Express. For more market-moving news, you can head to cnbc.com. Or join us again on the show with Jeff Cutmore, Steve Sedgwick and Karen Show Weekdays on CNBC.